you know, I really thought that success in design was going to cure a lot of the problems I had around gender or around my dad's death. Um, it was sort of going to fill this God-sized hole that was in me. Design was more of a survival than a craft at that point. Like, I don't think I ever consciously thought to myself, I'm going to be a great designer. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Robin Kanner talks about getting sober and working on the Biden campaign. I told my sponsor the first time I met her, she asked me what my goals in sobriety were. I told her I was going to elect the next president of the United States. When we think back to the Biden-Harris campaign and its visual identity, what did we see? On websites, campaign literature, television backgrounds, and buses, we saw deep blue backdrops, red accents, crisp, clear fonts, and carefully crafted slogans. The imagery projected patriotism, competence, and gravitas. Robin Kanner gets a lot of the credit for this. She was senior creative advisor for the Biden-Harris campaign and the creative director for the recent inauguration. Since the campaign, Robin and three other members of the Biden-Harris creative team have formed their very own branding and design agency, Studio Gradients. And we're going to talk all about that today. Robin Kanner, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. How are you? (laughs) Oh, I'm great. Thank you for asking. Robin, I understand that you saw Janine Garofalo at a party a few years ago, and the fact that you didn't tell her how much you loved her in Reality Bites is one of your life's biggest regrets. Yeah. What was it that you liked so much about her performance, and and why didn't you go up to her? I just think she's such a incredible actress with a solid point of view. And that's something that I have a lot of admiration and respect towards. I'm such a sucker for the 90s in every way. Every piece of art that I've liked basically comes out of the 90s. And she just played such an integral role in so much art that I respected, including Reality Bites. I was at a party for Wild Fang in lower Manhattan, and she was there. And, you know, I just thought about going up and just saying, like, hi, you know, I like your work, but sometimes I just feel like a nerd. Those events aren't places to have deep existential conversations. They're for, like, quick moments. And I just didn't want to have a quick moment. You know, I I just was like, I I really respect and admire your work, but we're in this different setting, so we're not going to have that kind of conversation. So I just didn't say anything. And then every time I rewatch Reality Bites, I go, damn, I really should have just said hi to her. Um, (laughs) I mean, she's just so fantastic in that film. Perhaps when, when the show comes out, we can get somebody to get a copy to her, and who knows? Yeah, maybe, just tell her. I maybe said that'll be in your future. Yeah. <laughs> Robin, you grew up in rural Maine in yeah. a pocket sized town called Fairfield, population 6,563. In the summer, all the teenagers in your neighborhood would meet down at the Kennebec River to go fishing. And I understand your first job was baling hay on a farm. Yeah. Tell us all about that. Was it was it difficult work? 
It was physically and mentally difficult work, yeah. We had a family friend in Clinton who who had a farm, and my mom was really sort of set on me getting a job at a young age and, and really figuring out what life was all about. And so I bailed hay, I think when I was like 14 or 15, for like $5 an hour. I think what made it physically demanding was just the intensity of bailing hay. You have these rectangle, you know, hay bales. It's the middle of the summer in Maine. The water that, you know, we drank sort of was like the sulfury water. So it wasn't even mm. like a crisp, like Poland spring water. Yeah. And you just Country had these water. really, yeah, you just <laughs> had these really hot days. And there were things that made it rewarding, which was, you know, at the end of work, we would eat sandwiches on a porch. And like that always just felt really nice to me. But, you know, it was mentally demanding because I was surrounded primarily around men at a time in which I, really had a hard time identifying as one, um, meaning that I wasn't one. So it sort of created these hard moments mentally where I had to compromise, which would be sort of the coping mechanism of my youth. Your father was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when you were six years old. And I read that when you were a kid, you worried every single night that that would be the night your dad died. How did you understand and handle his being ill? Not well. Um, Oh, man. Uh, If it's too hard to talk about, I completely understand. No, it's okay. I guess there's a couple pieces to it. One is that there is a power dynamic between a child and a parent. And from a very early age, that shifted in my family. In the sense that mentally, my dad was more intelligent than me. He knew more about the world than me. He was more well-read than me. He had raised me. He had been, you know, my North Star forever. And... Physically, from a very early age, there was a separation between us. He would walk with a cane, you know, I wouldn't. He would walk with a walker, send a wheelchair, and I wouldn't. And it created a lot of tension in our relationship at a very early age. It sort of was strange to experience loss so closely and intimately at an age in which I was too naive to understand completely what was happening. So I didn't have the tools to take a step back and look at it at the big picture. I was just sort of always trying to make it through the day. And I think my mom would probably say the same. When you're in it, it's a little hard to process and look at the full picture. But as I've gotten older and taken a look back, the thing that really stays with me is how difficult it was for us to manage the power dynamic in our physicality. You were six years old when he was diagnosed and you helped him and he was able to live at home until you were 17. You've written that your mom told you that your dad took a lot of his frustrations out on you, but you stated that you don't remember much of it and that your memory is blank. Is that still the case? It is um, for the most part. You know, when I was deep and addiction. Um, A large part of why I did drugs and a large part of why I drank was to forget about the past. It just wasn't something I wanted 
to have in my life. And I found drinking helped me forget it. The problem is, is when I got sober, I really wanted those memories back and I couldn't get them. And over the years, I've done things like deep meditation, you know, really sort of writing, focusing, honing in on the past to try to bring it closer to me. But what I've sort of come to realize is even when it comes back, it's still through sort of a rosy glass. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to understand those memories as real and it's hard to be reliable about them. And I think that is sort of a blessing and a, a curse in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Because I would really love to to see that picture full and clear and crisp and understand it. But I'm not sure how helpful it would really be for me. You know, my dad is such a North Star in everything I do. I mean, he's why I got into politics. There's, I wouldn't have done anything political without him. And I think that's a better memory to hold on to than any negative things I can't remember. I totally understand. And some sometimes I feel like my life's mission is to understand and try to recall my memories from the time I was nine until the time I was 13. I feel like everything would make sense if I just could remember sure. every single day yeah. and, and not have those sort of pockets of blankness that I try to fill up with ideas about those moments. Sure, yeah. Six years old was a very important year in your life. You not only found out about your dad's illness, you've also written that this is the time that you began to realize that you were trans, and this is what you stated. You know how kids describe what they want to be when they grow up, like a firefighter? When I was six years old, I said I wanted to be a woman when I grew up. Robin, did you did you share that with anyone? Was that what you told people when they asked you? And how did you feel about this realization? Uh, no, I definitely did not tell anybody. You know, I didn't know much at six, seven years old, but I knew that wasn't going to fly. What that really did was it gave me a secret. Yeah. And I think in some ways secrets are a good thing, um, but in some ways they're, you know, a really bad thing. And... When I think about that, I think about how I lacked agency primarily and how that lack of agency really sort of pushed me into becoming a pretty intense introvert when I was young. And I really believe that the past has to be the past. There's no changing the past. It just is. And, you know, when I think about gender and my relations to it, I guess I just think about how thankful I am that my gender is mine. And in a time where I think that identities can sometimes become culture and they can, they can become really big and they, they can be sort of, you know, shared and owned by other people in some ways. And uh, I definitely fell into that trap, you know, in my 20s. But the work that I've done over the last few years was really just taking ownership over my own identity in a way that hasn't been mine since it was a secret when I was six. And as much as that can be isolating, it's also nice to be able to control who I am a little bit more. Yeah, it's interesting how our culture somehow allows the sharing of opinions, thoughts, ideas about one's body, about one's 
relationship to their body. I was just reading the introduction to Julia Tertian's new cookbook, Mm. and it struck me how much she felt that comments about her body were just accepted as she was growing up and how much that impacted her and how she felt about her body, which was able-bodied and healthy. And yet she felt that she was always sort of less than because of how much she weighed. And and sure. just the idea that it's acceptable for somebody to have an opinion on how, how much somebody weighs, let alone their sure. gender. I mean, yeah. it's just to me unimaginable to think what the world would be like if we didn't do that. Yeah. I think in some ways, once you start to share stories about your identity, and this can be gender, it can be anything, it almost gives them agency to own a little piece of you. Yes. And I think when I was really young, I was completely unaware of how much of a misstep that is to let people have that. For a few reasons. One, I mean, you just get put into this box. Like, everything about me for a few years was really sort of tied into a a neat and and tidy box of being a specific type of trans woman. And I almost felt like it was for other people because the conversations were so wrapped around their feelings on it. And it was hard for me to be crass and just say, I don't care. What you think of me doesn't shift who I am. And if that is, is the truth, then like, why do I even need to share this piece of me with strangers. Right. And that sort of thinking caused a lot of rifts in my life, but it also sort of freed me from this really tight glass box that I, I didn't feel like I wanted to be in. It's a when, little vague, but... It's, no, I completely yeah. understand. You know, when I first came out, because I came out so much later in life... Suddenly I had to be talking about my sexuality, which was something that I never talked about before then. It was always super private to me. And so suddenly with this announcement or this sharing of, of my sexual orientation, somehow it then became okay to ask about things that I never talked about when I was presenting as straight. So I I was really baffled and, and somewhat irritated and, really intolerant of that in a lot of ways. It was nobody's business, but suddenly, somehow it felt like it was to other people. Yeah, irritated is the right word to use. And what I learned really over the last few years is it doesn't matter what I do. Like, you know, I look around now and I I go like, okay, I helped win an election in the middle of writing a book. I just started an agency. I um, have done all these things. And sure enough, the first question a stranger is going to ask me is, so you're trans. Do you have a dick? And then oh, I just fuck. have to be like, I helped win an election. Like, how could you care? But, you know, that's still the first thing that's on their mind. And, you know, if I let them have that conversation, then my identity is not mine anymore. It's just right. a performance for you. And that's just something I'm entirely unwilling to sacrifice. Absolutely. Let's talk about your design career. Yeah. <laughs> After high school, you attended a community college and studied history. You then attended a film school in Bangor, Maine for a semester. You then went to a liberal arts state college in Farmington, Maine, where you were accepted into the art program. When did you decide that you wanted to be a designer? Somewhere in the middle of there. Somewhere in the middle of there. (laughs) I think that I was such a bad student. I mean, I barely graduated high school. I I must have, I have no idea what my 
high school GPA was. So I'm guessing it was somewhere around a C or a D or something. And getting into a community college, I sort of did okay in there. In film school, I did okay in there. In art school, I did okay. I think that at Farmington, I, I was sort of getting wheeled into the direction of being an artist and thinking like one. Like design as a practice was sort of looked down on in art school. And, you know, I really thought that success in design was going to cure a lot of the problems I had around gender or around my dad's death. Um, it was sort of going to fill this God-sized hole that was in me. And I made a lot of design work because of that. Design was more of a survival than a craft at that point. Like, I don't think I ever consciously thought to myself, I'm going to be a great designer. At that time, it was always, I'm going to make design so I can get out of this area. And when I dropped out of college, I could still get a job in design. Like, you know, nobody really cared. So I think for a while, I, I saw myself as a designer only to make something that helped me get to a different place, like get to a different state, get to a different city, like just trying to get out of Maine. It's funny because now I don't even know if I am a designer. I don't think I am because I don't think I'm my work. Sometimes people will say like, oh, you're a writer or a designer. I'm like, well, I'm just a person who can design. Mm. Like I, I can take the trash out and I can cook dinner and I can call my mom. Like I'm all these things. I don't need to be defined by the fact that like I'm good on a computer or good with um, <laughs> composition. Well, you're multifaceted. You're <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah, more yeah. of a polymath, you know, with bylines in the New York Times and Wired. Sure. And I mean, you, you've you got so many outlets yeah. that I would, I would hesitate to say that you're just a designer. Yeah, yeah. You're a creative person yeah. who designs and writes and make thing, makes yeah, things. It's something I can do. Elections. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think about Donald Glover a lot. He, he gave an interview once with, I think it was... Somebody was asking him about being a rapper, and, and Donald Glover was like, I'm not a rapper. Like, that's so lame. Right. And it's so limited. Yeah, like, and I, I sort of, <laughs> I really adopted that theology for design. I'm just like, I'm not a designer. Like, that's just one outlet, that's one medium. I want the whole world. I want to be able to make and, and everything. You were also a photographer. Yeah. And back when you were first designing, it was really in tandem with photography and creating images and, and branding really for musicians. Talk about that period yeah. of your life and what kind of work you were doing. You did like 50 or 60 album covers, right? Yeah. Those are the golden years. Yeah. Um, I love that time for a few reasons. You know, one of which is how untethered I was to the world. I mean, I'd been in Maine, you know, really terrified about my own gender, really terrified about my dad's death, you know, really just kind of afraid of the world. And when I got into music found all these weirdos <laughs> that just like to make art and didn't really care about anything else. Our people. <laughs> yeah. And I loved them for that. Even in their sort of neurosis, they were still some of my best friends. I, I just loved being weird with people who were okay with being weird. I'd never had to like sort of um, hide myself from them. And, you know, I really appreciated their ability to tell story because... You know, I wasn't a kid who read a lot of books. You know, I wasn't a kid who, like, watched a lot of film critically. Like, I just, I didn't think of the world through that lens. But when I was friends with musicians and I'd, I'd you know, listen to my friends, like, Stan and Chris and Sean and Dan and Miguel talk about, you know, writing songs, I just kind of understood the craft of storytelling from a different lens. I found its power in it and... 
I wanted to just live in that power because it was so it was so fascinating the things that they could write and the things that they could say and the feelings that they could evoke from people. I wanted that ability to tell people what was going on in my body. Even if at that time I didn't have the skill set to do it, I was really admiring them for being able to do it and I was really learning from them too. You were working as a freelance photographer at First Avenue in Minneapolis. And on the night you shot Connor Oberst and the Mystic Valley Band, you wrapped up at about 3 a.m. and ended up having to walk home because you couldn't afford a bus ticket. What, What happened on that walk home? A lot of things. That whole night was absurd. You know, shooting at First Ave was like one of the most remarkable experiences because of the stories in that building. I mean, Princess Purple Rain was shot there. You had 7th Street Entry right next door. Like, that sort of hub of Minneapolis is beautiful. And that was also the first time that I was outside of Maine and in a different city and wasn't really accustomed with the world. You know, on that walk home, it was right around the time that I was starting to transition. There was a few dudes who were coming at me and they were clearly frustrated about my gender. And there was, you know, a scuffle that I sort of was able to run out of And it really terrified me because I had just experienced this beautiful high. And, you know, photographing bands, especially when you're in your early 20s, like in a photo pit, there's, it's like your heart is racing. It's a, it's, it's a remarkable moment. And you have, you know, you have sort of a a moment to really spend it and photograph and make art. And I was still in that headspace when I heard these guys behind me and, I had to so quickly leave that headspace and sort of run and, and avoid a potentially really bad situation. And I just remember feeling very powerless in a way that I never wanted to feel again. And, you know, that night I stayed up the whole time, you know, after I got back to the place I was crashing, I did a lot of drugs and I didn't sleep and I was really afraid of the world and I was very evasive to the people around me. And I remember like a few days after that, I just got on a bus to Chicago and slept on a different couch for a week. And I had to really sort of reevaluate how I was going to live in the world because I just didn't have tools. Um, it's, it's like, you know, when you're growing up, it's like you're trying to build a home, but certain people have different sets of tools. Like I didn't have a saw, I didn't have a screwdriver. Like, so the ability to, to how to build a home without those tools was, was shifty at best. And I think about that night, and I I wish I wasn't so embarrassed to be myself in that moment. It's so hard to not feel embarrassment when you've been through the kind of trauma that you have. Yeah. Um, You know, I think the natural instinct somehow is to blame oneself for whatever trauma is inflicted upon our bodies. And yeah. That situation in your life was really pivotal in terms of of the decisions that you made about who you are for a time you detransitioned and then made the decision to really make sure you were able to have access to the hormones that you needed. And at 25, you transitioned again. Yeah. That's why I'm so obsessed with control. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if there's anything I'm obsessed with more than anything, it's control. I like to... I like to be able to control everything about a moment. And I like to be able to control everything about a narrative. And I really believe in 
control. Probably to an unhealthy circumstance. I mean, my therapist has called me out on this before, but I, I really sort of don't like to be in a position of vulnerability. Why, um, why would you? <laughs> yeah. That's the least yeah. favorite feeling in the world for me. I can't stand yeah. it. I love certainty and predictability and yeah. being able to know exactly when things are going to happen and when they're not. And it's really led to some unpleasant moments in my life because you sure. can't live that way, but it doesn't mean no. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I, it's something that I've had to compromise and get over and work through. But, you know, when I think back on those times, I, I, I wish I had more agency. But I don't scold myself for not. Like, there's Good. not a part of me that is hard on me for, for not having agency at that time. It just sort of was the cards I had to play at the moment. And, you know, it all kind of worked out in the end. Mm, didn't your mom say that about your dad at one point? Those cards yeah, that yeah. you have to play? The cards that you're yeah. dealt? You went back to Maine after Chicago and basically talked yourself into one of your first jobs as a graphic designer, sort of proper yeah. jobs, I guess I would say, in that it was yeah. a full-time gig. And you got that job at Staples. Yeah. So so talk about how you talked your yeah. way into that job. It's such a, such a great story. Yeah. So when I, so I went back to Maine after Chicago, sort of like made a bunch of records, you know, did that. And at the point in which I retransitioned, I, I realized that Maine was not going to be a place that I was able to do that. It was just impossible for me to land a job in a, in a really sort of crass way. Nobody kind of knew what to do with me. But the difference between that moment and the moment before was I was just so unapologetic of what was going to happen that you were either on board or I, I was out of the room. And, you know, with Staples, it was so funny because... You know, I was working with this recruiter who had probably talked to like 30 of me a, a day. And, you know, with this job at Staples, I really wanted it, but it was going to require so much legwork. Like it was in Framingham. I was living in Maine. I w I'd have to move to Boston, but I'd have to get a car. But I was broke, so I drove this really shitty car. And there was all these sort of circumstances that made it hard to to do, but I was just relentless in the pursuit. Like there was nothing that was going to stop me from being a designer for paper packaging. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they asked you if you lived in Boston, and you told them yeah, you did. Oh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Classic Glengarry Glenn yeah. Ross tactic. <laughs> I was, you know, I had driven down for this interview, and the recruiter had prepped me really hard on what to say, how to talk about it, and you know, he was like, "You have to be living in Boston to work at this job." Grail, who's the design manager, he's going to ask you about it. Like, you got to know your stuff. And so what I did is I Google Maps, like, just a, a, a neighborhood in Boston and Staples <laughs> HQ, and I memorized that route. So, you know, when I did the interview, um, it was smooth, it was good, it felt right. And then the elevator on the way down, Grail was like, so where do you live? And I had it memorized. Like, I had the Google Maps memorized in my head. I was like, I live in Brighton. I took Route 9. The traffic wasn't that bad. I stopped at the Whole Foods. Like, I, I gave them such specific detail um, because I memorized the Google Maps route. And um, when I left, I, I, you know, I got the call back that I got the job. And, you know, I, I found an apartment immediately and left Maine immediately and started working at Staples. Um, but it was really, I mean, I can't tell you how intensely I was all in on Staples. I mean, that job was, and I'm, I'm so grateful I did. I mean, I met the most incredible people. You know, Grail taught me so many things about being a person and being a designer. Um, it, it was just kind of like a remarkable period of time. 
But when I think back on it, I just, I'll never forget the anxiety of being in that elevator, just like running through the Google Maps route in my head. <laughs> the whole foods. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you said that you stopped there. <laughs> <laughs> One of your next big jobs was as an art director at Amazon. Yeah. And so you moved to Seattle. Um, and you stayed at Amazon for nearly two years. And you said that the work there took a toll on your brain in a different yeah. way. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk about how and why that happened. Yeah, there was a few reasons. The biggest one was, you know, in Boston, I was working through active trauma. And in Maine, I had active trauma. And I wanted to get so far away from that trauma that I moved as literally as far as I could away from the East Coast, which was Seattle, Washington. So when I was at Amazon, you know, I, that's when I first got a therapist. So I was starting to process the past. I was also sort of taking on a different world. I had grown up, you know, I, like I lived off the state growing up. You know, we were on Medicare and Medicaid. I, you know, the majority of jobs I ever took was sort of low income things. You know, I'd never had money in my life. And I got to Amazon and I was in Seattle. And, you know, at that time, working at Amazon was almost this golden ticket. Like mm. things that I never imagined doing, like buying a couch. That was such an archaic concept to me because I just assumed I'd never be a person who owned a couch. Like that just, it, it just didn't feel like it was in the cards for me. So there was all these sort of personal things that was happening. I was grappling, you know, with the past. I was grappling with, you know, finance. And I was also grappling with the work. You know, Amazon is such a data-oriented place. You don't make decisions off of intuition for the most part. You're making decisions based off, you know, data that exists from books and you know, design system that have existed for years. And um, it really sort of shifted the the way I had to think about design entirely. And it also shifted how you know, I, I worked in a corporate environment and either had to tone down parts of my eccentricities or you know, figure out a way to, to manage them with being inside. You've said you've bombed two interviews in your life. Yeah. One was with a theater company and the other was with Facebook, yeah. which at the time you felt would have solved all your problems yeah. and would have allowed you to feel successful. Yeah. So, so how did you bomb the interview? What happened? So the Facebook interview was, it was such a remarkable experience. And it was more remarkable because I'd never done an interview that was eight hours long. Whoa. Like a Facebook interview is like a full day. Like, you know, they fly you out to Palo Alto. They put you up in this really fancy hotel. And you're sort of in their house for the most part. And, you know, I was broke while I was interviewing at Facebook. So, I mean, I remember landing in Palo Alto and being in one of the richest cities in the world. And like, you know, going to a 7-Eleven and buying <laughs> peanut butter and, and bread to make sandwiches in this hotel um, before this interview. And so I was already sort of in this headspace of like, you know, feeling out of my league and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like I wasn't going to fit in. And throughout that interview, like predominantly talked to a lot of white dudes and uh, a lot of cis dudes. And, you know, I wasn't, you know, as much as I had transitioned to that point, I wasn't fully comfortable with who I was at the time and I hadn't learned that and this is a if this is the coldest statement I say in this whole podcast it might be but like you know I hadn't learned to properly work with straight cis white dudes and that is in many ways a key to why I've been able to do the work that I've been able to do is I've, I've learned how to work with them because they still run the show and you know at Facebook I just didn't have the tools to really 
conversate with these people. And so when we were deep in conversation in the interview, I was always really nervous. And because I felt like I was teaching them while they were sort of asking me mm-hmm. to, to solve a problem. And um, it made me really awkward. And there are many things here. One is I probably shouldn't have bothered with the interview to begin with. Probably shouldn't have put myself in a position of teaching. I probably shouldn't have been in the in the room. But in, in hindsight, I just, I found it to be such a good experience because it sort of taught me what not to do um, in a lot of ways. And I don't think they're a bad company. I don't think anything. I just think that they would have changed me in, in the same way that Amazon changed me. And I'm just kind of glad that they didn't have the chance to change me. What have you learned about how to work with cis white men? Man, this is such a challenging question to answer. I've learned to meet them where they are. And that is to find a shared interest and talk about that shared interest. Whatever Mm. it may be. It is most often sports. But if it is anything else, (laughs) I can have that conversation. You know, I just felt that... a lot of people were so awkward around gender and it was just easier for me if I, I knew what to talk their language. And that was sports and like that was a conversation I could manage. It was easier to not be perceived as weird. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> Robin. In 2017, you moved to Brooklyn yeah. to work at Etsy as a senior product designer. What was it like for you to come back to the East Coast, but to move to Brooklyn, which is... Very, very different than Maine. Um, sloppy. Really? I, I would say when I, yeah. When I moved back to New York was when I was sort of deep in addiction in a way that I hadn't been um, before. That time is really blurry for me. It's hard to sort of remember it, mm. if I'm being real. I'd say a lot of things that were pent up w- was released at that time. And I just... I'd sort of lost, I just sort of lost my way in the world. And, you know, when I think about that time, I, I just think about how deep my resentments were to the world around me. And there was a lot of nights in bars. <laughs> yeah. You talk about this a lot. You express a lot of the feelings that you were having at the time in a project that you did from January to April in 2018 with designer and artist Timothy Goodman and comedian and writer Akilah Hughes, you started a project called Friends with Secrets where you all participated in online text therapy. Um, And these sessions captured a really unique slice of your lives, um, quite a lot of the heartbreak that you were going through. What made you decide to create that project? I think it was just sort of something that we had to say. And I'm not sure I would do it again. How come? It was relentless emotionally. Mm. I mean, it was... I, yeah, it was relentless reading yeah, it. It was taxing away in a way that wasn't funny. And, you know, I've since come to sort of really admire humor in work. And for me, there was no humor in that project. I mean, it was all just everything. It was relentless in its pursuit for processing trauma. And I think, you know, having done that around the same time that I got sober and was at the the, sort of the end of my my binging, in a way it captures the worst of me. And Oh, I don't think so, Robin. I think it captures the most vulnerable part of you. It is it's truly magnificent in its rawness and its honesty in its presentation of someone going through heartbreak and 
trauma. Yeah. I think it's 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 gorgeous and and sad. Yeah. But but really beautiful. Yeah. Really, really beautiful. Yeah. I think if I did it all over again, I would have put it in a character's voice and not my own. Mm. And then I wouldn't have to sort of shoulder the experience as much as intensely as I as I have. Yeah. Um I, I think that some of the things everybody talked in that piece was so heartfelt and so important and, and so of the time. I, I don't think it had to be me. Like I think I could have put that in a character and got some of that out in different ways. Well, as somebody that benefited from the way that you talk about your trauma, as somebody that's really struggled with my own shame of being who I am and why I am. I think for the millions of other people in the world that feel that way, reading the work that the three of you put out in the world, I think just gives people a sense that they're not alone yeah. in their experience of trauma. Yeah. And I think provides people with an opportunity to overcome some of their own shame in yeah. that. Yeah. So thank you yeah. for that. You know, I don't mean to sort of downplay the, the work or anything that I've worked on. I just, I think that when you make it, you have such a critical view of it. And there's so much gold in all the experiences I'm talking about, right? Like there's mm-hmm. gold in working at Amazon. There's gold in you know, being deep into addiction. There was gold in Friends of Secrets. The parts that I sort of think about is sort of the bronze of it all. The, the, the pieces that could have just been a little bit better. And that's from my own head. Oh, so that's craft. That's craft, yeah. which evolves as we evolve. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Robin, over the course of the project, you revealed that you were often engaging with your therapist while drunk. Yeah. In some of your other writing, you share how you started drinking at 15, smoking pot at 16. For a time, you were also addicted to Xanax and began harming yourself um, by cutting but in July of 2018, you got sober. Yeah. And you've been sober ever since. Sure have. Congratulations. Thanks. And I believe you stopped drinking on your own cold turkey. How did you do that? Um, I was cold turkey for about a week. Um, then I went into AA and very much got help. That first week was the hardest, though. There was really just no other option. That's in its clearest way. That's it. Like, there was no other option. Like, I had taken it to, like, the nth degree. I was on a real leaving Las Vegas binge. Like, I was going for the gold around that time. I mean, everything I was doing was about ruining. I just wanted to ruin myself. And in July, when I made the decision to stop doing that, my body just didn't have much left in me. Like, it, it it was so unromantic. My last drink, you know, I never pictured myself having my last drink, right? But my last drink was a froze, which is not even a good drink. Um, (laughs) And I had four of them back to back in sort of a dusty bar. And there is a specific type of sadness to drinking froze's on a Sunday night. I think it was the Sunday, I can't remember. You know, my pattern for living at that time was wake up, sort of stumble around, get a couple things done start drinking in a bar, you know, drink into that bar closed, and then I'd go home, sometimes harm myself, sometimes smoke a blunt, call a crisis counselor, talk to them until I passed out, and then I just did it again. It's not a great way to live. And I think that there were things in me that I wanted to do that I just wasn't in a position to do. I wanted to affect change. I wanted to be in the world. I wanted to 
to make it better. But I was so terrified of it too. I mean, I was terrified of the past. I was terrified of facing, you know, my dad's death. I was terrified of getting hurt. Like it just, so much of it came down to fear. And, you know, so much about being an addict or alcoholic comes down to fear. And, you know, in July, when I made the decision to get sober, it was a thing that had to happen. And, you know, that first week, what it looked like was sitting alone in my apartment with the blinds up in the middle of the summer and and drinking water. And I mean, my hands were shivering. I mean, I, I literally played video games just so my hands wouldn't shake. It was sad. There was nothing romantic about it. Like, so many drunks in New York City just think that they're going to make a Jackson Pollock. Like, and I was one of them. <laughs> like, I was totally one of them. It's just like, I'm going to get drunk and make this great painting. And I never did. I mean, I got drunk, but I never made a good painting. You know, luckily for me, I, I found a sponsor who, you know, quite literally saved my life in, in the best way possible. And uh, I literally don't do anything I do without her. You've written about how you believe trauma has layers. Yeah. How has getting sober helped you understand those layers? Every day it peels back a new thing. You just, you go into the weeds on it. And... Once you get past the pain, it's really beautiful. You really start to see things at a, a different angle. And moments that, you know, that would have felt sad when I was so drunk now have beauty in them. Um, very small things. I mean, you know, when my, so my dad, when he had MS, like he sort of lost a, a, um, a mobility basically every year. Around the time he, he lost his ability to walk, he really didn't want to lose the ability to go to the restroom himself. And, what that meant was that he would stand up on his walker and I would be on all fours pushing his feet each step so he could walk to use the restroom. And I remember, you know, thinking about that moment when I was drunk and with like a profound sadness. And now when I think about it, I just, it's such a beautiful, funny moment. And I'm in a way grateful that I have that. There's a real delight in uncovering the layers there and, and finding the beauty in them, even if I couldn't have seen it at the time. A year after getting sober, you were contacted by a friend who had worked on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign yeah. in 2016 about an opportunity to work on Beto O'Rourke's presidential campaign. Yeah. Um, talk about talk about that experience. You decided you wanted to take the job. And I understand that you had already told a friend of yours that a different friend that you wanted to help elect the next president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. And then this opportunity yeah. sort of comes your way. So talk about that moment yeah. and how it happened and, and what you ended up doing. There's so many layers to it. I mean, you know, I told my sponsor the first time I met her, she asked me what my goals in sobriety were. I told her I was going to elect the next president of the United States. And Oh my God, that's incredible. It was such a cocky move on my part. Um, but uh, I was so headstrong on it. I mean, I just looked at her dead in the face. And I was like, "I'm my goal is to elect the next president, period. And she just kind of was like, okay. And, you know, started helping me work backwards on the steps um, and, and even get to that place. Um, but, so, you know, shortly after I got sober, I, I had written this article in the Times that was heavily discussed on the Internet. And... Um, where you confessed to working on George Bush's campaign, that one? Yeah, confessing to, not working on it, but just volunteering for it. Like, you know, as a 17-year-old. Right, right. Like, the 17-year-old, like, holding signs outside and, and saying, vote Bush. Um, and 
you know, that article <laughs> created such a stir on the internet. And I honestly thought when it came out, there, there was no, going to be no way I was going to be able to work on the cycle. I thought I was canceled. I thought I was done. I mean, I really, I was like, well, that was a short-lived idea to <laughs> like win the election because there was just so much heat around it. Um, and I remember telling a friend, I was just like, I was like, I would really love to work on Beto's campaign um, for many reasons. I mean, Beto just represented such a great voice in what I thought the country should have. And, I, you know, I, I see his voice in, in everything that I do. And when I had, when I was getting sober in the middle of that process, it was right around the time that Beto had this moment you know, talking about football players kneeling. And I just loved it so much. And I thought to myself, like, if I ever got out of the mess I was in, like, that was the guy I wanted to work for. And so, you know, I emailed a few folks and um, was lucky enough that they they wanted me to come out and, and move out to El Paso and got to have one of the most rewarding experiences of my entire life. The love I feel for El Paso, Texas is like, it's so huge. It's like as big as my heart is. I, like, I just love that place. And I love the people. I love the sunsets. I love the food. I love the heat. I love the community. It's just everything about El Paso is like incredible. And um, got to work on this campaign during a really intense time. Um, you know, I I started and, you know, a month or two after I started, there was a mass shooting at the, the Sila Vista Mall in, in El Paso. And, um, you know, that event brought me so close with that city. And I had been going to AA meetings while I was on the campaign, Um AA meetings in El Paso are very different than the ones in New York. I mean, in New York, it's people who want to be Jackson Pollock, but in El Paso, it's people who have left the cartel and like would like to get sober. Um, so you're in a mm. very, very, very different room. And you know, I just, I just, you know, fell in love with it in every way. And you know, when the shooting happened, I, I felt like we all came closer. I mean, there was such a compassion in that city that I just. Um, yeah, it was really the best thing ever. After Beto dropped out of the race, you were offered her job as vice president of digital for STG Results, a political and public affairs advocacy firm in Washington. Yeah. So you moved to Washington. Um, what was your life like at that point in this new political realm? Oh, it was so strange. I mean, it was great, but it you know it was so strange. When our campaign ended in El Paso, I, I went back to New York for a month and slept on my sponsor's couch and really just sort of had to reckon with what happened in El Paso and process it. And, and you know, one of the offers I got was to, to move to D.C. for STG. I just didn't feel like I was done yet, you know. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really willing to accept the loss in El Paso. Um, I felt like there was more work to get done and SCG was the right place to do it. So I went to D.C., got an apartment, and was just sort of deep in a political environment at a, at a relatively intense time. And at SCG is where I, I started to to sort of plot the Biden move and and what that would become. Um, Biden's HQ was in Philadelphia. So while I was in D.C., I thought I was only going to be there for a month and move up to Philadelphia. But, you know, because of COVID-19, I ended up staying in D.C. in this, you know, sort of a makeshift apartment that I didn't fully intend to live in. And uh, that's where we did the campaign, basically. I understand that the combination of your work with Beto and STG made a real impression on Biden campaign officials. And you were hired by the campaign in March, 2020. You were hired before Biden was the front runner. 
How did you feel about the race when you first joined and Biden's chances? I had made the decision to go all in on Biden in January. In January, when the field was wide open, I just did the math. And to me, it was going to be Joe Biden. I just, I just did the math. And it was so clear in my, in my head that it was him. I remember, you know, I was sitting in Aaron's office. We were going back and forth on some stuff. And I was like, I know chances don't look good, but can you put me up in like a really bad hotel for a few days in Philadelphia so I can go and meet this team? Because I'm pretty sure Joe Biden's going to be your nominee. You know, he thankfully agreed. And I went up to Philadelphia and spent a few days with Rob Flaherty. And we just sort of started to, to plot out what we could make. Rob had, you know, been with me in El Paso. And I had trusted Rob and he had trusted me. And going to Philadelphia those three days, like, you know, we plotted out what would become JoeBiden.com on a napkin. We I hope you still have that napkin. I do. He actually it was a sweet move on his part. When we won the election, um, we met at the Logan Circle in DC and he had me go to his apartment and he had framed the napkin. Oh, it was like a very awesome. West Wing moment. So I have it hanging in my apartment for now. It wouldn't. It's probably going to go in a presidential library at some point in the next few decades here. But at the moment, it's in my kitchen. I'd love to yeah. to see that. I'd love to to show my our listeners yeah, yeah, yeah. what that looks like. It's such a funny. It's so funny because it, it it's so clearly like a website that came out of my head. I mean, the way I make websites is I I take a song structure and I go, okay, where's the bridge go? Where's the verses go? Where's the chorus goes? So if you look at the napkin, you can see like, okay, there's a chorus up top, then we're going to go into a bridge, and that bridge is going to be like links out to um, emails and stuff like that. Then we'll do a big chorus around volunteering. We'll do a little organizing bridge. Like I make websites like I make songs. So that's what that napkin looks like. But yeah, those those three days we plotted this stuff out, and you know, I met with Karana Magwood and Abby Pitzer, and we all just sort of plotted out what what something could be. So in March. That's when it was, and I had already been thinking about it for for two months. So I can't remember when it was announced publicly that I joined the campaign, but I there had been a few weeks prior to that that I was already, you know, deep in, into the work. So I guess I was I was just very grateful that I had time before it became a thing, because like, it took the country a little bit of time to sort of get their get our, our head collectively around what was happening that time where everything was sort of figuring itself out, I was already deep in the design process. So yeah, I'm really grateful for those few weeks that nobody was expecting anything, but I could work like just straight through. Yeah. I know that you worked on the Joe Biden logo. Yeah. And I read that you felt that the mark needed to define the future of the country, yeah. but also needed to offer a sense of established familiarity. Yeah. How were you able to accomplish both? So the way that I like to think about design or art or anything is through a sociological lens. I am not a designer who can code, but I'm a designer who read a bunch of Irving Goffman and Jean Baudrillard and Roland Barthes and you know all these sort of classic sociologists. And I was really weary of a corporate symbol. And if you looked back on history throughout this you know century in political design, you know you had the O. And that cemented a mark of political design being corporate. And we had the H, which sort of drove that in harder. And I just felt like if I, if I had done a BH, if I had tried to have been clever with the country, it would have been so inauthentic. And 
at a time in which we only need authenticity, I just didn't want to be clever with people. I wanted to be honest with them. That's sort of the, you know, the, the big reason why there's not, there wasn't an icon in the campaign. It was Biden-Harris. Like, Biden was already the household name. And this is the thing Jonathan Heffler and I talked about a lot. I mean, through those early explorations where I, you know, tried to push a B or tried to push an H or, you know, try to, to add cleverness to it. The more clever it got it, I just felt like the more it got away from its goal. And it started to become design for designers. And I mean, I just don't care what designers think. <laughs> like, I'm sure they're fine, fine. But I, I just don't care. What I was focusing on is like, okay, how can I bring comfort and familiarity with Biden and Harris? How can we drive that in? So, you know, we kept the three stripes from the primary logo. We, you know, explored various type weights. We, we, we sort of pushed the kerning on it. Biden, thankfully, fits like a sandwich. I mean, those five letters, like, just like, squeeze right in. It's a tight little sandwich. But once you add a second name there, you know, it sort of loses its finesse. And a lot of the work that Jonathan and I did was figuring a way to make sure that the mark felt like a brick, just felt so together. And it symbolized a strength and it symbolized a, um, a whole unit. And, you know, if you looked at the Trump and Pence logo, it Pence was so small on the ticket. I mean, Pence's name is like just a centimeter big compared to Trump's. And there there was such a, a hierarchy between the two. And I wanted Biden-Harris to just feel like one tight unit together. And was was really thankful that Harris has six letters in her last name. <laughs> he did it for you in yeah, some ways, yeah. right? The proportion. That's, in the end, that's what I'm most thankful for. Wired wrote a piece stating that you and your colleagues used your own life experiences to craft a strategy that was inclusive and unifying. What made you decide to use your own experiences in this way? It's all we had. I mean, we had to. We had so many different perspectives and lived worlds and ways of thinking, and I wanted to, to use it all. So we had to use our life experiences because they were so rich and they mirrored the country in such a clear and effective way that it would have been foolish for us not to. When I think about, you know, the broad overarching conversation that's happening in tech right now about diversity and inclusion, I just think like, you know, you trust your people and you, and you, you get the right people for the job. Like Julian, you know, who ran our oppo did such a great job with the design. And, and one of the reasons why he did such a great job was that he actively didn't like where the country was heading. Like, you know, one of the first conversations him and I had was about how he really didn't like the country's direction. And that, to me, signified a great oppo designer because he already was thinking about how to make the country better and wanting to live in a better country. You know, the the full breadth of our experience um, is what enabled us to to produce such a a great design system. And, you know, I I think relying on those lived experiences, which are inherently American, just helped create a mirror for the country and, and, and visually helped us explore a new political language. It's funny because, you know, when I was in the heat of the campaign, I mean... It's not like people were excited about the design. I mean, I remember many people coming at me and just saying, this design's boring, it's too traditional, it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, what I was thinking was like, well, it's it's working, first of all. And second of all, like, I don't need to be cute for you. Like, I need to win an election. And, and that's what this thing is going to do. 
I understand your personal experience being bullied while growing up helped inform the campaign's opposition strategy against Trump. In what way? You know, when I was a, a queer teen in the middle of rural Maine, a lot of people had a lot of power over me. And they had that power by being aggressive and, and looking big and tough and presenting as, you know, hyper-masculine. You know, the thing that I always wanted to do with my bully was take away their power. I didn't want them to be this big red blob. I wanted them to be small, black and white, grainy, noisy, sad, pathetic. I wanted my bullies to feel small. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the life of me, I, I, I don't understand why a lot of Democratic politics present Republicans as these big, angry red blobs, because in my opinion, it's just giving them more power. And our job is to fundamentally take away their power. So, you know, for me, it just made sense to remove their power. And, you know, we did that in a couple ways, one of which is through conversations with Julian and pushing our ability to define that language. Um, and then the other way was through this television show called Mr. Robot. Uh, yes, I love this story, yeah. Robin. I'm so glad you're bringing it uh, up. Created by Sam Esmail. And, you know, I'd su- I was such a fan of Sam's shots. Like, just the... His craft is is remarkable, and I've studied it so intensely. I mean, I remember watching Comet and being floored by what he was able to do. And he just took it to such a next level with Mr. Robot. And like I, I knew I wanted us to, to go there, and I just didn't know how he got there. And I felt it would have been cheap if I just tried to imitate it. So I went out of my way to like send a lot of emails <laughs> to, to to find a way to talk to him. And a friend put us in touch and it was, you know, it was so funny. Like they, you know, they sent an email to uh, Sam's wife, Emmy, and Emmy sent it to Sam. Sam reached out to me. I get on this phone, you know, it's just kind of like a bizarre Hollywood connection. And I remember getting on the phone with Sam and just being like, okay, so how'd you do it? Like, give me, what are, what's, what's the thing? And we talked a lot about how to use photography in the right way, you know. I was working with photography that always existed. Like I never had control over the shoot, whereas Sam had control over everything. So there's a lot of conversations about how to get the right photographs. But one of the biggest conversations was around eye contact. You know, a thing in our oppo was Trump very rarely ever made eye contact with you. He always looked outside the frame and he was looking either down or to the left. He was up. He was always trying to visually leave the frame. And Doing that, which which came from Mr. Robot, was a way to to make the country see how sad and, and powerless the, the man actually was and how much he wasn't ready to lead the country. You know, like most things when you're creating, it's a combination. It, it's a combination of conversations with Sam and conversations, conversations with you know, Julian and, and me and lived experiences and being bullied and everything sort of came together. When you have those moments come together like that, it's like you're like a baseball player and you're at the bat and you see your pitch come down the line and you just know you can slug it. You just got to get the pieces right in place. Mm-hmm. And that's what it felt like when the oppo landed. It was probably the biggest risk that we took on the campaign. It was the most invisible one. And it was invisible because I purposely never told anybody outside of the campaign until after the election. Because if it didn't work, no one was going to give a shit. It was one of those things where, like, if this works, then it's gold. Then I've proven this really great theory. But if it doesn't work, then I'm screwed. Well, thankfully, it worked. Yeah, yeah, I held it in, and and, uh, I'm glad I did. You also brought in a hot pink color palette, 
rainbow gradients, illustrated infographics. Talk a little bit about the use of gradients in the work that you did. I read that you described them as having a joy that contained a brand new feeling for life. So the gradients come out of so many things. And I am hyper aware of the joke around gradients. Like I'm so in tune to the fact that designers love to make fun of gradients. But for me, there was a few things that came together around the same time in which I couldn't stop thinking about gradients. Number one is in one of the first AA meetings I went to, the sober house that I got sober in on on Sunday nights was a big book night, which meant that you read the big book and you went around the room reading from paragraph to paragraph. On Tuesday nights, a speaker would come and qualify, and then you would share back your thoughts on them. And on Thursday, you you would discuss a, a specific topic around sobriety. And that program was how I got sober. I did that every week for months. Like, I mean, every week for months. And on a Tuesday night meeting, you know, a guy was qualifying, and he was sharing the story about how he had a really difficult time finding serenity. And as a person who had a complicated relationship with God, had a complicated relationship with higher power or, or feeling serenity, I understood what he meant. Like, I, I've i just been uncomfortable for so much of my life. And I just deeply connected with him. And one of the things that he talked about was that one of the first times he felt serenity and so sobriety was on an early morning when his body just woke up he was down by the ocean and he just looked at the sunrise and he talked about how the sun just painted the most beautiful colors for him and how it was the first time in sobriety he was finally able to take a deep breath and just exhale and he felt like a calmness and a serenity from that and i understood that feeling because it was so desirable to me i hadn't had it yet but i wanted it so bad and if you think about a sunrise or you think about a sunset what they really are it's gradients. They're just colors shifting and colors changing. And it can sound lofty and I really don't care, but I really believe that a sunrise or a sunset is God's gradient. Like that is <laughs> made by the world around us and its beauty is unmatched. And it's so emotional to me. You know, when I thought about the campaign, I just thought about how I wanted the world to feel that emotion too. I wanted them to share that joy. I didn't want to make linear gradients. I didn't want to make these like sort of boring mathematical gradients. I didn't want AI gradients. I wanted natural godlike sunrises to cascade over the country. And that's where they came from. You know, when I got to El Paso, because you're so close to the border and, and, and the, the colors in El Paso are so specific, you get these gorgeous sunrises and sunsets, unlike anything in the world. I mean, they paint the most beautiful things in the world. And you're just in awe about the world around you. And you know, the sun always set over Mexico. You know, you're in El Paso, you're right next to Ciudad Juarez. And you know, to see the sunset over Mexico every night, it was just such a beautiful, surreal experience. And you know, when you put them all together, I just thought, like, wow, what if people could feel that emotion? And I get it. A few designers online are going to like be like, haha, whatever, gradients. And I don't care about them. What I care about is somebody feeling that emotion, that shot, that beauty. I wanted it to be the backbone of the campaign. And, you know, I'm very grateful for gradients. And it's, it's something that I'm just so fine with everyone thinking it's anything that they want it to be. Because to me, it's that guy in the meeting, Finding Serenity. And it's about how that's such a great thing to strive for. Robin, 
I don't really care what designers think about gradients, but I do care that my listeners really understand what a gradient is. Yeah. And it occurred to me that they might not, because it's not just designers listening. So how would you define a gradient? Gradient is colors changing. It is looking at point A to point B through an image and a color that shifts. An orange to a red or an orange to a red to an orange to a blue to a purple. It's about not having hard lines visually, but a smooth transition into a different time. Yeah, it's really hard to do. Um, Armin Witt designed the Design Matters website for yeah. me, and the whole thing is gradients. Yeah. So you've got a big fan right. here in your use of gradients. It's really hard to make gradient without something called banding. Yeah. That happens when there's a hard line between the colors yeah. that bleed into each other. So congratulations. I, I think it was gorgeous work. Is it true that you named one of your gradients gods for his gradient? Yeah, I mean, there were all of them. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, there was a few named, you know, there was the victory gradient, which was the, the gradient we made for Joe's victory speech. God's first gradient. I just think that's every sunrise in, in the world. Yeah. Speaking of gradients, after heading up the creative direction of the 59th presidential inauguration, you and several of your colleagues on the campaign founded your own design and branding consultancy. You've named it Studio Gradients. How is it going so far? It's going great. It's amazing. Um, It's everything that I want to be doing right now. You know, working with Eric, Asia, and Anna has been remarkable because they're just so talented on the campaign and continuing that environment where we know each other so well is fantastic. You know, even pushing the sort of style of our, our website or, you know, pushing the style of our design, it's it's been really fun to create a different voice. And in some ways, it's the complete opposite of what Biden looked. Um, it's called Studio Gradients. We don't use any gradients for the most part. What we do use is a lot of handwritten elements and a lot of sort of chicken scratch that bring it some humanity. I do as we've talked about in this podcast, you know, really well when I have control over things. And having uh, my own studio really enables me to, to work on multiple things at once. And, and that's something I'm very grateful for. Can you talk about any of the projects that you're working on? I am separately working on a memoir at the moment. Um, so that's probably, wonderful. That's the biggest scoop um, of this thing, probably. But yeah. Wow. When will we see that? come into the world? That is a, a very good question that um, my agent and I are trying to figure out, but I'm I'm deep in writing it right now, and it's a really phenomenal experience and a really humbling one. Design is like a thing that makes sense to me. Writing is a thing that I really have to work at, and it's, it's fun to be able to work at this one. So I have two last questions for yeah. you before I let you go. First, do you ever think you'll run for office? Um... Probably not, but I don't want to create a full hard no there. Good. Maybe. Good. Um, Interesting. Watch this face. Yeah. It'd be such a humbling experience, but it would also be such an intense one. I mean, you know, when I think about running for office, you know, the thing that should come into my mind is the future, but what comes into my mind is the past. And I think about how complicated it would be to be on a campaign trail and, and talk about you know, addiction in such an honest way. and How refreshing. Yeah. At this point in my life, I wouldn't be able to do that. But, you know, maybe in 10 years I, I find a way and the country moves in a way that would enable me to do such a thing. But, yeah, as we sit here, I'm more of an artist than a politician. Well, I think you'll enjoy my last question, or I hope you will. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it's so, so serendipitous that, that this is what it is. So um, four years ago, in an online interview, you were asked to fill in the blank in this sentence. In five years, I want to blank. You responded to tell the dopest story that breaks your heart. <laughs> so Robin... <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. So I could say wholeheartedly that you have done that. Yeah. <laughs> and you've done that in the best possible way. So the last thing I want to ask you is to fill in the blank once again. In five years, I want to... Continue telling the dopest stories that break your heart. That's just <laughs> sort of, that's that's an ethos for me if there ever was one. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Robin, for for coming on the podcast today and for helping to steer the world in, in a really better direction. Thank you so much. Thanks, Debbie. You can find out more about Robin Canner at Robin Canner, and that's Robin with a Y and a K, robincanner.com, and her brand new brand and design consultancy at studiogradients.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.